0: Well, I tell you, it is so nice to be back. I uh, I always uh, appreciate coming home and knowing that I'm uh, that I have a home here and that I'm loved. I just uh, I just really appreciate that. I, I don't want you to think that when I go to other places to speak, I'm not loved. Uh, but uh, it's just nice to come back and and uh, minister to people that are family. It's really good to be back. And we want to thank the Northwestern uh, Men's Glee Club and their ministry to us this morning. This was a, just a great time of worship. Someone told me as I was sitting there in the, in the service earlier that years ago they were walking the streets of Minneapolis. And a student from Northwestern College shared the gospel with her. Uh, were you, You're not a Christian then, right? And uh, so we're just glad to have them with us this morning. Would you turn with me, please, to the fourth chapter of John, John 4, and we'll begin reading with verse 43, John four forty-three. When first read, this text strikes you as a very unremarkable passage. You, you, you read it over and over again, and you wonder why it's here. As a matter of fact, our staff last spring, when we were dividing up the passages to uh, preach on for this coming year, had some question about uh, who wanted to teach the passage, because some of the men uh, felt that it was a very difficult passage to teach from, to derive uh, truth from. And uh, I understand, it is difficult. I read the passage over and over again and, and kept wondering, what's here, what's here for us today? I knew there had to be some significance here, because John is very careful about his selection of sources. He only uses material that, that is important in developing his theme, that of the, the uniqueness of the Son of God. So there must be something very helpful here in this passage, but for the life of me, I couldn't see it for the longest time. My, my system of reading the Bible is simply to read it over and over and over again. As I've said before, when God wanted to communicate with us, he did so in conventional human language. And uh, uh, part of the problem in understanding the Bible is simply understanding how language works. And so I, I read the passage over and over again, and I scratch my head a lot, and I ponder and I think and I pray and ponder some more and try to understand what the passage is saying. That's the, that's the method that Paul commends to us in 1 Timothy two, or 2 Timothy 2 with references of things that he said, some symbols that he's used. He says, think about these things. The verb that he uses means to put your mind to something, to think hard, ponder these things. And the Lord will give you understanding in all things. So there's both a natural and a supernatural process at work. You have to read the text over and over again, and you have to think about it. But my understanding of this passage came not from my reading and study of the passage. It came from Bud Dale. We, we, our staff gets together on Wednesdays, and we have lunch together, and we talk and share and pray, and then we often go through the passage. And uh, as we were discussing the passage together, we were uh, we were trying to think through the argument, and I was getting a lot of high level, high octane theology laid on me by the other staff men. And no one had seemed to understand the passage very well. I certainly didn't. And Bud, who many of you know, who is our maintenance man here, who keeps the grass clipped and green and the flowers growing, and and uh, the place uh, maintained. But said, "I know what this passage is all about. This is an illustration of what Paul means when he says the righteousness of God comes to us from faith to faith." And the coin dropped. You know, the Coke can fell out. I realized what it was that this passage was designed to teach. It teaches us how our faith grows. One of the questions that I get over and over again is how, how do you make your faith grow? How do you increase your faith? That was a question that Jesus received from time to time from the disciples. He said, to, as you know, to them that they needed to forgive an infinite number of times. And uh, one of the disciples said, Lord, increase our faith. And we can't pull that off. We need help. We have to believe you for greater things. So how, how, can, how can our faith grow? That's what this passage is about. It's how God causes our faith to grow. Now let's look at it together. John 4, 43. And after the two days, Jesus went forth from there into Galilee. The the, the two days refers to the two days that he spent in Samaria in ministry to those that had been reached and touched by his ministry to the Samaritan woman. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they themselves also went to the feast. Jesus had been in in Jerusalem, in Judea, ministering, as you know, for a period of time. He started up to Galilee, went through Samaria, spent two days in Samaria, and then went on to Galilee, to Cana, where the first uh, miracle had been been performed. It's significant that John says he came again to Cana, because the second sign that John records occurs in, in Cana. We know that's Nathaniel's hometown. Perhaps he was planning to stay with this uh, disciple's family. If we read the text carefully, what it says is that Jesus went to Galilee because he expected no one to take him seriously there. you see that? That, that conjunction, because, uh, causes us to stumble. It doesn't seem to make much sense. Normally people do not go where they're dishonored. You would expect the text to say that Jesus uh, left Jerusalem because a prophet is without honor in in Jerusalem. Or he would say that Jesus left Galilee because a prophet is without honor in his hometown. But what this passage tells us, if if we take it at face value, is that Jesus went to Galilee because he expected to be dishonored there. Galilee was his hometown, his home country. The commentators do some funny things with this passage. Walt Kaiser said last time he was here that when the angels want to have a good laugh, they read some of the commentaries, and I have to agree with some of them. Some of them are very helpful. Some are not. Uh, one commentator I read said that uh, that every Jew considered Jerusalem his hometown, and therefore, when when John records that Jesus left. Jerusalem to go to Galilee because a prophet is not with, a prophet that has no honor in his hometown. He was thinking of Jerusalem as his hometown. Now that's very ingenious, but that's not what the text says. The word that's used for, for hometown here means fatherland, country, home country. I think what this text is saying is that Jesus never avoided hard things. He very often went to places where there was unbelief because he needed to break through that unbelief. He never avoided the hard thing simply because it was hard. He went to a place where he would not be taken seriously because he knew there were people there who were in need. And even if they didn't honor him, they still needed to be reached. Now, that's hard for us, but we're also called to the same sort of ministry. I was thinking this past week of some of you women who simply because you're women are not taken seriously. You're, you're demeaned and disparaged, and people don't listen to you. They, they expect you to say inane things because, simply because you're a woman. But the tendency is to shrink, to withdraw, or to get angry and bitter and militant and make a, a angry buzzing sound like a home light chainsaw or react in, in some way. Carolyn and I were looking through some books in the uh, Boise Public Library yesterday, rummaging around for some summer reading. And... She was looking at books on women in the church, and guess what section they're found in? They're, they're, they're contained in the section in the library. It has to do with the church's ministry to minority groups, blacks in South Africa, the Chicanos, and women. And very often, that's the way women are looked at. They simply have nothing serious to say, so no one takes them seriously. So you feel like you're shouting into the wind. You're trying to give wisdom to people, and they aren't listening simply because you're a woman. Now, I think I understand because nobody takes the clergy seriously either. I've gotten where I never tell any more, anyone anymore that i'm a I'm a minister. They ask me what I do. I tell them I'm a sheep herder. They usually say, "Oh, that's interesting. Are, are you Basque?" I say, "No came from Texas." And they say, "Oh, well, now that I look at you, you do kind of look like a sheep herder." Huh? But I don't tell them I'm a preacher because they expect preachers to say inane things and they just turn you out. Turn you off. They tune you out. But see, that shouldn't stop us because even though people don't honor us, they don't take us seriously. There are needs there that need to be met and therefore we need to continue to minister and serve because they're hurting people. As an example, let's read on in the text. Jesus came therefore again to Cana of Galilee where he had made the water wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and was requesting him to come down and heal his son for he was at the point of death. Jesus came again to Cana, took residence there perhaps in Nathaniel's house. And along comes a man from Capernaum. He's described here as a royal official. He probably came from the royal court of Herod Antipas, the so-called king of the Jews. He would probably be a Herodian, or at least a a Sadducee, which means that he was sort of on the fringe of of the evangelical movement in Judaism. He would not be a a Pharisee. Be like someone coming from one of the large, more liberal churches here in town and looking for Jesus. He's that sort of person. Came up. From Capernaum, because Cana is uphill from Capernaum. Capernaum is on the north side of the Sea of Galilee, below sea level. Cana is up on the mountainside. About 20 miles to Cana. Perhaps rode on horseback because he was a noble. He came because his little boy was sick. The verb tense that John uses suggests that he'd been sick a long time. This was a long-term illness. One of those illnesses that just wears the family down. And now he was at the point of death. Because he was a nobleman, he probably had, had plenty of financial resources. He, he tried everything. poured out a great deal of money trying to find help for his little boy, but, but the little boy was terminal. And so he apparently had heard of the miracles that Jesus had performed. So he came up to Cana to ask for help. Will you please come heal my son? Now those of us who are parents can understand, I, there's, a, there's a real poignancy about this story. Most of us as parents have gone through some very critical times with our children. And you know how your heart longs for some solution and how you, you sometimes grasp at straws, anything, to uh, to get get help to your children. Uh, I, I remember one time when we uh, heard that our one of our sons had a, a tumor, a bone tumor on his arm. It just scared the daylights out. We were down in California on vacation, and we discovered a knob on on Brian's arm, and and, uh, we took him to a doctor. The doctor said, you go home right now and have that looked at. So we cut our vacation short, headed for uh, San Francisco, took him over to Stanford Medical Center. The doctors looked at it, so we've got to go in and take a look at that right away. And as it turned out, it was nothing serious. It's what they call an osteochondroma, just abnormal bone growth. But but, uh, there was a possibility it could have been a melanoma. and we were frightened out of our wits. And I remember standing outside the, uh, Brian's door one night when a friend of mine, a uh, physician friend, came by. And uh, he's sort of an objective, very straightforward, uh, not very uh, sensitive person when he comes right down to it. And, and uh, he, he was talking to us and telling us about this procedure. He wasn't on the surgical team. He was a urologist, but he just happened by. And, and so I said, John, what, what will happen if this is a melanoma? And he says, well, I'll, I'll take his arm off." And Brian was playing Legion Baseball and his whole life was sports and I thought of him spending the rest of his life without a, without a right arm. And you know what happens to a father's heart at that point? It just sinks. I would have done anything. We would have exhausted all of our finances and borrowed any amount of money. We would have gone anywhere. I, I would have gone to a quack in, in Cuernavaca, Mexico if I thought he could, if he could heal. I didn't care. I was desperate at that point as as it turned out. It was just, just a, a bone, abnormal bone growth, and there was no problem, still no problem today. But it was a frightening time. And when I read this story, I knew exactly what that man was feeling, that, that sense of dread that you have down in the, in the, in the pit of your stomach when your children are, are desperately ill. His child was terminal. So this man jumps astride his horse, and off he goes to Canaan to get help, because he'd heard that Jesus could give help. He had a reputation for healing the sick. And giving sight to the blind and opening the ears of, of the deaf. And, and he wanted help. So he came up to Jesus and asked Him to heal his son. Literally, was, was requesting him. The verb tense suggests again that he was repeatedly asking him, begging him, come down to Capernaum and heal his boy. Jesus therefore said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. That sounds so harsh. Someone un- unlike our Lord who is so gentle and sensitive in His ways. Unless you people, He says, see signs and wonders, you won't believe. Now there's something that softens the impact of this statement. It's the fact that the, that the pronoun you is plural. He's not talking to the man. He's talking to a class of people perhaps the Galileans who didn't honor Jesus, or perhaps the Herodians, Herod we know from other places in the Gospel, wanted Jesus to come and do some magic for him, entertaining. And uh, Jesus wanted to find out where this man was, so he raises this whole issue of, of faith being based upon miracles and signs, what you see. That's why he said that, unless you people see signs and miracles. You won't believe. Because there is a class of people who are like that. A miracle junkies, I call them. They go from one healing service to another looking for a fix, something that will shore up their faith. They want to they listen to people tell them stories of resurrections from the dead and visits to heaven and those sorts of things. People who come back from the dead to, to verify that it's all true, that it really happened, that God is a lie. Those sorts of things. And, and their faith is a very low-level faith. They're believers. But it's a faith that has to be supported and shored up and encouraged all the time unless they see something, unless they see miracles. They don't believe. So it's a very elementary, low-level basis of faith. They therefore their, their philosophy of life is seeing, is believing. Show me something. Show me a sign. Show me a miracle. I'll believe it and then their faith begins to wane, so they have to have another miracle to get them going again. And it's that, you see, that Jesus is trying to correct. He's not at all sitting in judgment on this man. He wants to take him from level one faith to a higher level of faith. He wants to increase it. He wants him to go from faith to faith. So he asked the question. The man's response is, is interesting. And it was... It was the response that Jesus was looking for. The royal official said to him, Sir, come down before my little boy dies. In other words, I'm not one of Herod's flunkies. I didn't just come down here to in in order to see you do some magic. I'm not looking for a fix. I don't need to have my faith shored up. I know you can do it. I I think this man... and realized that Jesus was indeed the Messiah, that his signs verified his person, his office. He was concerned about his little boy. He just wanted the Lord to come down. He wasn't looking for miracles. He just wanted help. He knew the Lord could help him. He'd gone to the right source. Now he's pressing upon him the urgency of this matter. Please come down to Capernaum and heal my little boy. I don't care about all this stuff. It's rigmarole as far as I'm concerned. I just, I just trust you. You can do something for my little boy. Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your son is alive. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and, and he started off. Now, John's report of this conversation is so terse, it's so laconic, that it's easy for us to miss the drama of this thing. We miss the whole point. If we'd been standing there, though, we would have, we would have seen something very significant. Jesus is not speaking to the child. Jesus said to him, your child is a liar. Some commentators say that what what this miracle does is establish that Jesus could cure over long distances. And and it's true, he does, but that's not the point. Because he did not call long distance to the child. Son, get up and walk, as he did Lazarus in a loud voice. He's not addressing himself to the child. In some unknown mysterious, unseen way, Jesus cured that child 25 miles away. And then he said to the man, your son's alive. And that, by the way, is the correct way to translate this passage. The NIV puts it, your son will live. In other words, it's a prediction. It's a prophecy. But that's not what the text says. It literally says, your son's alive. You see that? At this moment, Your son is healed. He's restored to life. He's okay. He's in the backyard playing around. He's all right. He's healed. Now, it it would have been a simple matter for for Jesus to go with the man. He very well could have done that, but that would have not been what the man needed. All the way back to Capernaum, the man would have been thinking, "Uh, I hope he can, I hope I can, I think he can, I think he can, I, I believe he can he would have been trying to psych himself into believing that Jesus could do what he claimed to do. And then Jesus would have stood at the side of the child and he would have spoken to the the boy and he would have stepped out of that uh, bed uh, healed and whole and the man would have said, I know he could do it. But he didn't do that. He said to the man, Your boy is alive. And the man, without any evidence... Without any miracle, without any sign, with only Jesus' raw words, turned on his heel, said to one of the officials with him, where is the latest toys, or where is the nearest toys or us? I'm going to pick up uh, a Roman soldier for my boy, and I'm going to go home and play with him. And he started off for Capernaum. All he had was the word. You see, that's level two faith. Level one faith is having to see a sign. Level two faith is just taking Jesus at His Word without any evidence. It's the certainty that a thing is so, even though you don't see it. It's a faith It's based on the unseen. It's based on the Word, the pure Word of God. It's taking God at His Word. It's just believing that whatever He says is true, even though it cuts across everything we've ever heard or seen or done. Even though it cuts across our culture. It's true. I can trust it. It'll work out. It's reliable. See, that's the issue. And this man believed. We miss, we miss the beauty of this thing because it's such a simple statement. This man believed. That's all. He just turned on his heel and he started for home. Now, the verification came later, as it often does. As he was As he was going down, his slaves met him saying that his son was alive. So he inquired of them the hour when he began to get better. They said therefore to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, at one o'clock in the afternoon, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at that hour in which Jesus said to him, Your son lives. He himself believed in his whole household. The confirmation came after. did not come before. He had no sign that it was true. He simply took Jesus at his word, started off for home. The slaves came and said, It's happened. Your boy is alive. He's all right. And his faith was confirmed. Now, yep. that's what often happens, that's what happened to Moses. Moses uh, didn't want to go back to Egypt. Moses was sent anyway. He said, well I, I don't want to go. Who am I? The Lord said, I'll go with you. And when you get back to this mountain that is Sinai, you'll know that I've been with you. Moses had to act solely on the basis of God's Word. That's all he had. He didn't have the verification until he came to Sinai. He could look back and say, the Lord's faithful. In retrospect, he knew that God had been faithful. Now, that's what this story teaches us. You know, The way we grow is by being forced into situations where we have to trust God and trust His Word without any verification. And He just keeps lovingly pushing us off the plank so that we have to trust him. some of you are living in homes where you can't see what's going on some of you are living god awful situations i know i know you tell me you have mates that abuse you and misunderstand you some of you have have problems with your in-laws some problems with your children Or with your parents. They're terrible situations, I know. And you're desperately looking for help. You want someone to change so life will be much better, so you can have a beaver cleaver house. But nothing is happening. Your situation is just as bad as it ever was. Can you trust the Lord that He'll never leave you or forsake you? That's His word that He lives in that house too. He suffers when you suffer. He's in pain when you're in pain. He understands. He can give you grace to be stable and strong when everything else is falling apart. He he can put your feet on the ground so that you're solid, stable, when everything else is shaking, when you have problems with your teenage kids, or you teenage people have, have problems with your parents. Or you have problems with your mates. Can you believe that? Can you believe His Word? And not bail out of that situation, not give up, not quit because it's tough. He's there. He's in the midst of it. Some of you are struggling with uh, what someone has called bedeviling sins. Carolyn calls them those temptations that seem to know my name. They just keep calling you, keep alluring you. Maybe uh, reading pornography. Maybe a temptation to be bitter or unforgiving or resentful over something that's happened in the past, something your parents perhaps did to you when you were a child. Maybe homosexuality. Maybe any number of sins that bedevil you and haunt you and harass you and you struggle and struggle and struggle against those sins and, and you, you keep keep falling down. just can't get it right. Keep working at it. You want to change, but you just can't seem to change. Can you believe what the Lord says to us? Sin will not have dominion over you. You may see victory in this life, or it may wait for home when you get to heaven. But you're going to see victory. He's going to make you pure. Can you believe Him? Can you continue to struggle Side with the Lord against the sin and struggle against it even though occasionally you fail. C.S. Lewis said no amount of falls will really undo us if we keep picking ourselves up each time. We shall of course be very muddy and tattered children by the time we reach home. The only fatal thing is to lose one's temper and give up. Are you willing to keep on struggling? I was talking to Dan Brown this last week, and he was telling me a story about two men who were alcoholics who struggled with drunkenness for for years. Both became Christians. They later were comparing notes, and and one man said, uh, "When I became a Christian, the Lord took away from me the thirst for alcohol. I've never wanted to have a drink since. I haven't had a, had had a drop to drink." The other man said, "Well, I I'm so happy for you," but he said, "That's not been my experience. Every day I awaken with a with an insatiable thirst for for alcohol and I I struggle with it all day and I occasionally fail and I I haven't he hasn't taken away the desire, but I'm making progress." Now sometimes we hear miracle stories, people being immediately uh, relieved of any uh pressure from old sins, and and those are sometimes very discouraging to us because it hasn't happened to me. But God may call you to struggle with Him against your sin, and maybe you won't win in this life completely, but one of these days you're going to stand before Him, and you'll be like Him, and you won't have to struggle anymore. Can you believe His Word? Can you trust Him? Even though you can't you can't see the end of the process yet, is your faith based on the unseen? You see, are some of you are struggling with physical afflictions? I I I know of some of you that just seem to be desperately ill all the time. Others that are struggling with emotional sickness, there doesn't seem to be any any relief. Can you can you believe as Paul puts it that this light momentary affliction is working for us an eternal weight of glory because we look at the unseen and not the seen he puts it that way See, so don't waste your suffering let it let it produce glory in your life make it permit it to make you more like the Lord Jesus that's what Paul is saying because you look at the unseen not the seen but the unseen See, that's the world of realities. That's, that's real. But we don't always see it except by faith. We see it through the Word. We see it on the basis of what Jesus has told us is real. See, we trust Him. Uh, the writer, the author of Hebrews puts it like this, "...what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, the prophets, these great heroes of faith." Who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword. From weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. And others were tortured. Whoop. What happens? You see, he's cataloging victories that people have achieved in this life. And all of a sudden, he turns the corner on us right in the middle. He sets us up for what follows. Others were tortured not accepting their release in order that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us they would not be made perfect. In other words, for for God's sovereign purposes, He did not let them see the results of their faith in this life. Some people saw it. Others did not. And it's God's choice whether we see it Or not. And the point of this whole uh, chapter, as you know, is to teach us what faith is all about. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Well, this tells a a delightful little story of Psyche and and her quest for God. She has, in the end, a, a fountain that she drinks from that no one else can see. She has a banquet table that she feasts at which no one can see. She has a husband who loves her and who enfolds her in his arms and no one else can see him but her. She was living in the world of unseen reality, as we must. You see, God starts wherever we are. He, he takes us to the rather low elementary level of faith and then he puts us in situations where we just have to trust him. Without any signs, without any wonders, without any miracles that teach us to believe in Him even though we don't see the results, even though we don't immediately see the outcome. And that's authentic faith. That's true faith. That's that's the sort of faith that's described here in Hebrews 11. Now let me leave you with one of the illustrations. One of my favorite stories in the Old Testament. Uh, The the, uh, Syrian king his name was ben-hadad was upset because elisha was tipping off the israeli king king joram to his movements elisha had a, a intelligence source that uh, joram who was the king of israel didn't have god god was telling him what the syrians were doing so elisha would report to joram what the assyrians were doing the syrians were doing and uh, joram would know how to avoid uh, uh, certain battles and and get out of difficult situations. So Ben-Hadad decided this was an intolerable situation. He had to do something about it. He had to, he had to uh, kill Elisha. So he you know, he, he masses almost his entire army, and they march against the city of Dothan, which is the little city where they threw Joseph in the pit. This little tiny wall city. Elisha and his servant, uh, servants are in the city. And uh, under cover of darkness, the Syrians encircle the city, ready to besiege it in the morning. Sun comes up, Elisha's servant looks over the parapet, sees the Syrian army, and freaks out. He just panics. What are we going to do? Get this. Elisha said, there's more of us than there is of them. Elisha and his servant, thousands of Syrians, more of us than there is of them. And he says, Lord, open his eyes. And he opens his eyes, and around the city, between them and the Syrian army, are the ar- is the army of God, the chariots of fire. You see, Elisha believed in the unseen reality. He wasn't afraid. Because he counted on God and His Word. Is so that where we are? Is so that where I am? Is so that where you are? That's where God's taking us. If we're not there yet... That's where He wants us to grow. Because He wants us to have that quality of faith, the sort of faith that looks at the unseen realities rather than the seen things around. Let's pray. Would you take a moment to um, examine your own heart and permit the Spirit of God to uncover any areas where where you need to, to begin to trust the Lord Areas where there's been a, a great deal of unbelief and unwillingness to entrust yourself to the Lord. A feeling that perhaps your way is much better, much more secure, much safer. And yet it, it amounts to unbelief because you're, you're acting in ways that are contrary to God's will for your life. Maybe you're looking for a husband, but you're looking in all the wrong places. Would you confess that? or perhaps your business is uh, is shaky right now and you're taking an action that you know is not not legitimate and yet you're afraid will you trust the lord with your life and with your your business and, and simply put it in his hands no matter what it costs and do it his way lord jesus we thank you for this reminder that you're the faithful one We simply want to entrust ourselves to you and and look beyond the seen to the unseen. We know that's the real world. It's the world of spiritual reality. We want to trust you there. We ask in Jesus' name.